You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is uh, an unusual one. I, I, I can I can assure you it's something we've never talked about in the long and storied history of this podcast, and that is an area in South Louisiana on the border um, between uh, Louisiana and Texas that has been known historically as no man's land. And there was one time uh, back in the 1800s it was known legally uh, as no man's land. It had to have to, well, we'll tell you what, what it had to do with it. And so we talk about that and, and what it was like and why it happened and what the situation was. Uh, and so uh, what, what brings this topic up is that there's a, a documentary that has recently been released through uh, LPB uh, and, um, and it's also gonna be streamed and also there's, there's various ways you can see it. Uh, and so I think it's gonna be a, a very important documentary. It really deals with, with, with a slice of history that very few people Know about um, so first of all, I want, to, I want to introduce Bill Rodman, who's the uh, uh, the producer of this documentary. Uh, the guy has got all kinds of credentials. He's won several uh, Emmys. He's done a lot of documentaries, uh, and uh, he's also pioneered a technique called one man band, which is the idea of uh, a guy goes out with a camera, uh, does the shooting and does the interviewing and does the editing and, and, and just kind of creates uh, his, uh, uh, his his features. He is aided, though, by Flo Omer Rodman, uh, who's helped him with him. Uh, they're essentially their uh, their co-producers, and uh, she's worked on these projects with him. And I assume is uh, probably the, the brains behind the project ultimately. Everything's always going to work out. Okay, and then uh, Alden Cormier, uh, who's a historian who's uh, out of Lake Charles, has written several books, including a book about uh, Lake Charles and the Lake Charles area. So thank you all for joining us. So which one of you wants to explain the history? What happened in the 1800s that made the creation of this no man's land? Well, as a historian, maybe I'll start. Go with uh, it. Uh, this would be Alden Cormier. Yeah, this is Alden Cormier. And uh, it uh, actually refers back to a period of time when uh, a lot of Western Louisiana was not particularly well documented, not well mapped out. Uh, the lines weren't particularly drawn. And when um, Napoleon decided to sell the Louisiana uh, territory to uh, Jefferson and to the United States, uh, how, what the Western boundary was, was not particularly well defined at all. And uh, essentially for a, about a 30 year period, there was a gentleman's agreement between the closest American commandant in, in Natchitoches and the closest Spanish empire representative over in Texas, that this corner of Louisiana, this area, would not be um, would not be taxed. It would not. They would not send militia. It was going to be viewed as just a lawless corner of of uh, undocumentable territory. It was going to be a, a free for all, really, uh, for uh, uh, the settlers. Uh, no taxmen would go down there. Uh, it was just going to be allowed to just exist. And uh, when the, uh, the, the final lines were actually drawn, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it meant that there was still a two generations worth of people who lived under uh, this territory that had no real government. This wasn't a deal between two monarchs sitting on their thrones. This was no, a, it, was, it was a practical arrangement between two generals that, uh, hey, we're going to let those people fend for themselves. Uh, you keep yours to side of the, the border, we'll keep on our side, and then this undetermined wedge of Louisiana is just going to have to fend for itself. And um, the, uh, the folks who live in this corner of Louisiana have always felt that it was a little bit underrepresented in telling the story of Louisiana. Um, being in Western Louisiana, uh, so many people feel that the history of the state is essentially the history of New Orleans and the history of Baton Rouge. It's the history of the Mississippi-focused 
uh, corner of Louisiana. And uh, uh, the history of Western Louisiana, whether you're in Shreveport or Lake Charles or, or Alexandria is sort of like on the second tier. But uh, it, it, it is an interesting piece of history. It's, uh, it's probably the first time that two governments have practically said, we'll let those folks fend for themselves. Let's see what happens until the actual lines are drawn by treaty. And uh, it, it, it's an interesting, an interesting experiment. And uh, the, uh, uh, the Rodman uh, uh, documentary, which was perfectly done, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly done, because it was a one-man approach. It, 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 he didn't scare off any of the folks in Western Louisiana. They were happy to open up because it was just one man. He wasn't a revenuer. It was just one man. <laughs> so, so this area was created, uh, this entity, it was created in 1806. Is that correct? Um, uh, it, it, pretty much, it, it, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the purchase was in 1803, but by 1806, they finally got around to how do we define what we actually own? And uh, uh, the, uh, the story is that Wilkinson, who was the general in the closest post to uh, this part of Louisiana up in Natchitoches, and Herrera, who was a Spanish general over in Texas, uh, got together and said, hey, we don't know where the line's going to be drawn. It could be the Sabine, it could be the Mermintah, it could be the Calcio, it could be anywhere. We're going to just let those folks fend for themselves. And this is exactly the time when, um, at least for us here in South Louisiana, uh, the Jean Lafitte comes into the picture and he was able to actively uh, operate in the open because he wasn't, uh, as far as the folks in Southwest Louisiana at the time go, uh, he wasn't a privateer or a pirate. He was a source of goods and materials for the, the, the poor scattered uh, settlers here. We're not talking about a huge number of people, never more mm -hmm. than four or 5,000 people in, the, in this corner of Louisiana at this time. And um, uh, there were no peddlers, there were no established cities, there were no settlements. It was essentially you and the wilderness and whatever Jean Lafitte might be able to supply you on the side. No, no bill collectors and so on. No bill collectors, no tax collectors, no revenuers. <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, yeah, it becomes, it, it, it develops a sort of energy of its own because when you're operating outside the bounds of government and uh, there's nobody to tell you, no, you can't do that, then all sorts of things are possible. Sure. Uh, uh, and uh, a lot of that, uh, that still happens. The, it, it builds the, uh, one of the factors of the resilience of people in Southwest Louisiana and Western Louisiana. Uh, the fact that they're, they're a little bit uh, um, uh, slow to change. They're a little bit uh, suspicious of, of the new or the different. Uh, they uh, uh, wouldn't cotton to a whole group of, of videographers coming in and finding out about them, but when one man decides, yeah, when one man comes in and says, hey, tell me about no man's land, we open up. Now, I, I want to get to some of your perceptions when, um, when y'all went there, but it's one of historically, there have been several places around the world identified as uh, no man's land. Uh, in World War I, there was that space, was it like between Germany and France or areas of that's looking tested, and, and there are several different spots. And so it is a common thing, well, not that common, but, but, but it's been there that you had an area that no one quite knows to do with it. So until they could sell it, they call it no man's land. Well, yeah, no man's land. Of course, it's also called the neutral strip. There was another term for it. Um, uh, I think no man's land in the nomenclature, it may be the first time it's actually used, and it was later used in this concept of who owns this patch of land? Nobody owns it. And uh, it gets to be used uh, in World War II, certainly, World War I, certainly, World War II, to some extent, there were, there were patches of ground between opposing forces when neither side had uh, total control. Uh, it's just that in Southwest Louisiana and Western Louisiana, it lasted for a, a good 35 years. And um, uh, even with the the uh, eventual settlement, uh, you know, more established settlement, the actual parish lines being drawn out, cities being established, there's still a sense that this is a remote and difficult to get to part of Louisiana. And uh, it uh, sort of flavors the activity of the people who originally settled here and how they approach government and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the rule of law and the fact that they need to be self-sufficient. 
because uh, they can't really count on on uh, the rest of the state realizing that this is actually even part of Louisiana. Uh, not to put uh, too fine a point on it, uh, Louisiana history is essentially the history of New Orleans, and at least that's the way it, it was taught to me when I was in eighth took eighth grade um, uh, Louisiana history. It was essentially uh, the history of New Orleans and the, the, the plantation economy and all of this. And because we were never part of the plantation economy and because we did not use New Orleans as the basis for, for trade and for, uh, for social contacts and for culture, uh, it, it's sort of, a, 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 sort of an, a, an undissolved, a, a, an unrefined and un, un, um, uh, focused part of the, the uh, Louisiana history. Uh, Western Louisiana history is tough to talk about. It really is. There, there are a lot of things that are here that are not really part of what you expect to find in Louisiana. Because a lot of it, as you say, is undocumented. No, um, that's true. It's, it's very undocumented. And uh, of, as we say, speaking of New Orleans, for anybody who's listening, I don't want them to get confused about this term neutral ground, because in New Orleans, the term neutral ground is used quite commonly but it's a totally different meaning. Yeah, for, uh, yeah, it, for it, medians. It, 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 it's the street median yeah. um, uh, in New Orleans, and it goes back to a long time between the English and the French or something. And it yeah, the, the Americans and the Creoles. Had, it, uh, it, yeah. It originally referred just to a street median along Canal Street, but now to somebody in, in New Orleans. I mean, I mean, they could be in Detroit and they see a street median and say, there's the neutral ground. I mean, the, the neutral ground is becoming a universal term, but but there's no, well, maybe it's a little bit lawless, lawless is on, but anyway. <laughs> um, so, um, Bill and Flo, tell me about some of your impressions from from the area. I mean, have you known the area all your life or, in, or any characters or anything? I mean, like when you first started looking and, and studying the area, any any anything that really described the whole of you? Um. Well, let me start by saying um, I had heard about this story uh, 20 plus years ago when I worked in, in news. Um, I did a feature story up at Los Adias. And um, that is just one part of this, this great big story. But okay, that, tell, tell the people what Los Adias is. Um, Los Adias was, was the Spanish fort that was there on the border the contested border between Spain and, and France. So that was kind of the entree into the subject matter for us. And, um, and, you know, like I say, it was years ago. So as filmmakers, we have like the little list of stories and, and shows that we want to do in the back of our head, our dream list. So we, we stowed it away on that list and, and lo and behold, we've had a, an opportunity to, to produce it finally and learn the, the greater, bigger story. But, um, as, as far as our impression, first impression of going over there, just an interesting place. So it was remarkable, you know, Ad, how Adley described so well uh, the differences over there. Geographically, it's so different too. It's uh, the vast Kisatchee, the hills, and, and, it, and it lends itself to, to some of these outlaw stories that maybe we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but it was just fascinating in that regard. It was, it's like the, so it's almost like, it's very much like the, the landscape mirrors the culture out there. And um, but Flo, if you want to add something. Well, <clears throat> I always go, not, no historical event happens out of context. And so to almost understand no man's land when it was first originally designated a neutral strip or no man's land, you have to step way back in history. You have to step back to the French and the Spanish and the new world being developed. And that <clears throat> in the um, early development of Louisiana, New Orleans, where the Mobile, the French came in, the Spanish came in and Natchitoches was settled to trade for a lot of different reasons. The Natchitoches, um, the French came in and settled Natchitoches or tried to with the Caddo who were living there in total. And then the Spanish come in 
as a response to the French. And so that, there is your first boundary that's kind of uncontested, but is a definite French boundary in Natchitoches and in our definite French presence versus a definite Spanish presence. And so those two places aren't 50 miles apart from each other, but they put a little line in there that started French versus Spanish. And over the years, that area that has been cut out that is known as no man's land was always under Spanish rule. That area never flew a French flag. It had French settlers, it had British settlers, it had all kinds of people coming in. But that little piece of land, <clears throat> which was always Spanish. Now, when Spain ceded, um, France ceded um, the, the Louisiana territories west of the Mississippi to Spain, all of it was Spanish, even though Natchitoches retained its French rule. You all, you know, it's still French. Then the purchase comes along. And of course you think that those three years between the purchase, excuse me, and the agreement between Wilkinson and de Herrera, who said we make this gentleman's agreement that Adley was referring to, that area is different than the rest of Louisiana. It's always been different. It's always had, a, it always flew a different flag. It always had, it's, it was still a gumbo of people, but the taste is different. You know, there's, there's the Indian culture, the Spanish culture, um, and the people who were in, at Los Adias in that Spanish fort, which was at one point in time, the capital of Mexico or Spain there, um, they still retain a lot of that heritage. Mm -hmm. You fast forward to 1806 and you try to define them. <clears throat> well, they've always been by themselves. They've always had to do without. They've always been on their own. And so when we come into no man's, the time of no man's land, when they're under no rule, because the United States thought they bought X and they really bought Y. And it all comes to fruition with Adams and O'Neill's treaty when Louisiana's western border was finally settled. But even when Louisiana became a state in 1812, Adams and O'Neill's treaty had not been settled. So that means the western boundary of the state of Louisiana was not settled. Not defined. Who knows that? And so that's that little wedge that is so amazingly unique today. It's, it was lawless. It didn't have any, it was just craziness. This is all filmmaker's dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's an epic story that, that uh, is just now being explored. And it, it, it is, uh, it's a tale of, of uh, European empires planting flags and then the the necessary changes and you know whose flag is here whose flag is not here and then a practical sort of new world approach to hey we're just gonna have to let it be the way it is and not bother sending our resources our scarce resources into an, an area of of uh, fifteen thousand miles in western Louisiana that's very difficult to get to, and and that's part of the uh, that's part of the, the the romance of the story. It was always difficult to get to uh, uh, no man's land. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, at a time when the rivers were used as means of transportation, uh, everything along the Mississippi and the Red were fine. But even Natchitoches was is on the Cane River. It was, you know, the Red River moved away from Natchitoches. So it was even difficult to get to Natchitoches and particularly difficult to get to Southwest Louisiana. There was no real um, uh, mechanism to get here except over land. And we're talking about over marshes and 
uh, sawgrass prairies and, and that sort of thing uh, with uh, folks fighting uh, mosquitoes and everything else to get to southwest Louisiana. So the, the whole western Louisiana wedge, the whole neutral strip, um, is, uh, it's a prize, but, but there are richer prizes along the Mississippi, the Red, in the Teche Valley and so forth. So folks settle there first, and, and uh, this area becomes a, a sort of a haven or a beacon for people that don't fit into other parts of Louisiana or other parts of Texas. Uh, we do have stories of, of folks who were enticed to Texas moving back into, into Louisiana when, uh, before the, um, the, uh, the uh, uh, annexation of Texas. So it, 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 we, have, we have migration left and right into the, the no man's land. We have, we have uh, uh, the British, we have the French, we have the Spanish settling there. Of course, we have the Native Americans that, that had good relationships generally with, with the few settlers that were there because it was not viewed as the prime territory uh, of Louisiana. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't cotton country. It was essentially uh, uh, prairie and scrabble pine and um, uh, uh, everything from the coast all the way up to, to Sabine Parish uh, farms part of that wedge. So uh, in the south, you had the marsh and the, the prairies. In the north, you had the piney woods. You had the hills of the Kasachi, but all of it very, very remote from New Orleans and Baton Rouge and the powers uh, that, that, that be. So it, it, seems, uh, it, seems like it seems like if you had an area like that, it was unoccupied. I mean, I mean, I mean, um, barely occupied. It wasn't any, wasn't any discipline. It was occupied. That sooner or later, some sort of government would evolve. Somebody at least saying, "I'm in charge." I mean, I mean, even if it's just a tyrant or something. Was there no jurisdiction? Was there nobody looking over? Was there, was there nobody with authority there? Well, there were a few people with authority, but it was essentially you had to have your own protection. Uh, you couldn't count on justices of the peace. Uh, at least here in Southwest Louisiana, we were uh, the parish seat was in Opelousas, which was about a seven-day overland trip. Mm. So uh, the justices of the peace in Southwest Louisiana, and to some extent in Vernon and in, in Natchitoches parishes, uh, were about the only source of any sort of of, um, of uh, uh, jurisprudence, if you will. But even so, it was, uh, it was essentially a situation where you had to take your, uh, it was self-defense, it was protect yourself, it was uh, be slightly wary of strangers, uh, uh, be cautious as to how you live your life because you had to be pretty much self-dependent and self-reliant uh, when you were living in a cabin in, in, in Western Louisiana in no man's land because you couldn't count on on uh, Wilkinson's troops or anybody else, and uh, we're talking about the 1820s, 1830s, 18, even the 1840s, uh, coming in to save you. They, nobody was going to save you. You had to save yourself. And um, that is part of the ingrained DNA of, of no man's land. Old, the, 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 the early settlers, if they're still here, uh, if they have descendants, they're still that sort of self-reliance. And uh, we're talking about self-reliant in terms of uh, food production, self-reliant in terms of self-defense, self-reliant in terms of protecting one's family and property. Um, it's uh, uh, when, when you live in a land with no law, then you are the law uh, to the point that, that you can be. Uh, and uh, the, the high sheriffs of uh, certainly Calcasieu Parish and, and uh, uh, later on in, in, in the, um, in the early 20th century, the ones in Beauregard and Allen and, and uh, uh, Vernon and so forth all had to have really strong personalities in order to, to, to try to control the orneriness of, of folks who were living in no man's land. Um, uh, at least here in, in the south part of, 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 of uh, no man's land, uh, during the sawmill era, uh, there were parts of town that were totally lawless. Uh, we, we have a, a corner of Lake Charles called uh, uh, Battle Row, which is where the cowboys and the sawmill workers and the railroad men would, would fight almost nightly battles for turf and territory. And uh, the sheriff would send somebody by to calm them down periodically. But this, this went on through to the 1920s. So it's, a, it's not a, 
a one-time thing. And, and I'm not saying that there's an entire lawlessness here, but in terms of of uh, uh, self-reliance, it's a it's a really big factor in Western Louisiana to be self-reliant and to to be self-sufficient, and uh, it, uh, it it crops up periodically when uh, e even today uh, with uh, uh, the effects of Laura and Delta, for example, uh, folks in Southwest Louisiana had to pretty much buckle their shoes and get back to work on the ground as quickly as possible. We couldn't count on. FEMA to come and save us, we had to pretty much come and take care of ourselves, and, and which is what, what what many folks have done. But and that, it, and that federal check was a long time coming too. Yeah, oh, oh. it's yeah. been a very long time coming, but yeah. we still have, it still hasn't come. <laughs> to, to be quite truthful, you know what I mean? Still, okay. um, yeah. So that's something a pretty tough crowd to be in a fight with with cowboys, sawmill workers, and railroad uh, guys. Bill, let me ask you, you made a comment a while ago when, uh, when Flo was talking about this, about if this is a dream for a filmmaker. What did you see as a filmmaker? What, what appealed to you there? Um, well, you know, Harold, um, anytime that you stumble upon a story that is this epic in nature, that is this fascinating, and you're a storyteller, we're all storytellers here, talking right now but anytime you stumble upon something so of, of this scale and significance and you find that a majority of the population doesn't know anything about it that's a gem that's that's what I dream that's those are the kinds of stories that I, I live to tell and this just this just checked all the boxes for me um, I've lived in Louisiana my entire adult life but I, I grew up in the Midwest. So um, I, Louisiana is so darn interesting to me, you know, prior to no man's land, but this no man's land, um, you know, realization to me and learning about this and producing this film has just, has made something that I, I couldn't imagine being any more interesting, just that much more interesting. So it's like it, you know, the it's like the whole story of Louisiana now culturally is is kind of been turned on its ear a little bit. We we now have this new section to talk about, and you know, it's not all our film. You know, we we were just fortunate to to be the medians to kind of help talk with everyone and and to put something out there, and and in terms of of hopes and wishes, and I think I'm safe and. Speaking for flow I'm too. Sure you, um, you know, our, our hope, our hope is that you know a lot of people learn from this. It's a fascinating story. Um, maybe schools pick it up, but um, it does seem to be such an epic story to to be so largely unknown still. Is there some sort of a, an, an artifact or a, I don't know a thing over there that if, if you're bringing guests in that area? say, hey, look, I want you to be sure to see this. Ooh. Well, there's a- Oh God, not one thing. Oh, there's, <clears throat> it, it, but one of the, an interesting thing about the uh, neutral strip is it extends from the southern part of the Toledo Bend Lake that we know today, all the way down to the coast. And then it takes a, a curve into the state of Louisiana. So you're talking about a large swath of geography. So- Fort Jessup. Fort Jessup. Is, a, is an interesting place that people can go visit. It's a, it's a, a state historical park. Yes. And so you can go in there and tour it and- um, Then the, whose fort was this? Was this the United States? Was it French? Was it Spanish or? Yeah, Fort Jessup was built after the Adams and Nice Treaty in um, uh, okay, so the eighteen twenty yeah, in the eighteen twenties, and it was built in response to all of the lawlessness that was going on in the neutral strip. Once the treaty was decided that Louisiana goes to the Sabine River mm -hmm. 
and becomes part of the United States now, well, they still got all this lawlessness. They've got rampant um, smuggling going on, uh, thievery, <laughs> all Jean Lafitte, lots of tales about um, robbing people along the El Camino Real. Mm -hmm. So Fort Jessup, interesting enough, was built to curb all of that. And one of their biggest things, they sent a contingent down to Kentoman Atkinson, which is in like Charles in Adley's back door yeah, um, or front door um, yep. to uh, kind of control some of it down there. Yeah. And, 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 and just to, to play on that, part of uh, part of the the <laughs> artifacts that come back from that period of time, um, because we live in the coastal south, because we're subject to hurricanes and all sorts of other uh, phenomena out there, a lot of the built evidence of no man's land is gone. Cantonman Atkinson is gone. Uh, there's a big rock that shows where it was. There's a wonderful narrative of how Cantonman Atkinson was uh, where the United States planted the flag in southwest Louisiana back in, in the 1820s. Um, uh, was bought by one of the pioneer families and operated as a sawmill. And then it went away because it was lost through storm and fire and everything else. So there, there are individual spots that have great meaning for people in, in telling the story of No Man's Land. But in terms of, is there, a, is there a Jackson Square with St. Louis Cathedral? Do we have that equivalent here? No, we really don't. What we have are essentially very early cemeteries and pioneer families that tell the stories and the names of things that are, that are still in place that help to tell the story. But it's, a, it's, a, it's unfortunately a narrative of which much of the physical evidence is gone. Um, and and uh, uh, even as, as you know, late as 2020 with, with Laura and, and, and Delta, we lost some of the artifacts that uh, would have gone back to the, to the, uh, the period of no man's land. Uh, so it's a, it's a fragile corner of the state uh, in terms of, of, of the physical uh, uh, artifacts that tell the story, but the, 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 the families tell the story and the place names tell the story and places like Fort Jessup and uh, the site of uh, Los Adeos and uh, Cantonman Atkinson help tell the story. Now, isn't there a, what, the town of Logansport? Yes, Logansport is at the north end. And what we now know to be, we all know it as the top of Toledo Bend Lake, the best fishing in the world. At the time of no man's land, there was no dam. You could almost walk across uh, the Sabine River on a regular basis. So all of that has been changed, changed for the better, yeah. But change, and, and that is part of the that is part of the problem. The the story, um, we have little documentation. We have hardly any physical evidence. We have stories, and and this is why it's important to begin the process of of getting those stories out. Um, uh, and, and even the boundary, you mentioned the boundary of, of Louisiana, the actual boundary of Louisiana is the western shore of the Sabine River, or it was until as late as 1976, I think, when uh, uh, the city of Port Arthur was developing Pleasure Island by filling in part of the lake. There was a Louisiana claim to that land because it was built on the, from the western shore of the of the Sabine, so uh, you know even even boundaries can be can be uh, not they're set, but then they're not set. Uh, uh, even in this story, it's an ongoing western uh, western uh, uh, story. The western boundary of Louisiana is an ongoing story. Uh, uh, they just recently actually drew it out, so it's still in dispute. It's it, we're a disputatious part of Louisiana. I thought I read that in the Sabine, there's some sort of stone or some sort of object that made that, that was there from that time. You know, are you familiar with that or? Um, there's a, um, a marker of the 
um, Texas, um, the international market bet marker between Texas and Louisiana okay. is north of Logansport. Mm -hmm. All right. Have, I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to be sure. Have any of you identified a family or a person who can prove that their ancestry goes back to that time, goes back to the 1800s? Go ahead, Flav. Well, um, two of our um, victims are like Adley, two of the people that um, <laughs> we feature. Um, Cody Bruce is the genealogist for the um, Choctaw, um, uh, Apache. Apache Choctaw tribe of Ebarb and Rhonda Goche. Both of them can trace their ancestors back to settlers at Los Adias. So, um, and then we had a, a wonderful time at Maryville. Yeah, kind of going back, Errol, to what you asked about visiting places in, in no man's land. We forgot to mention Los Adias is a state park now. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can visit that and they have, the fort itself is, is no longer intact, but they have it laid out um, a nice little framework of where it sat. So you can go there and, and see it and it's, it's really neat. And they have a great interpretive uh, setup there as well. And then Natchitoches on the French side of things was Fort St. Jean Baptiste, which is still there too. So, and that's part of the, the bigger overall story of no, of no Man's Land too, even though it's not in No Man's Land. You know what I don't get? Whenever I hear about you know, Camino Real, the trail, did it actually go from Natchitoches to Mexico City? I mean, could somebody, Yes. Have gotten on that trail back then yes. and reached Mexico City from Nagadish. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the main reasons when, when I was saying that there was never a French flag that flew over that area. There, Mexico City, San Antonio, that was the closest government that, that area had. They, don't, they had to fend for themselves. And they also had to um, rely on smuggling. They had the Spanish shouldn't shouldn't weren't supposed to be trading with the French, but they did because they had to. It was a necessity. Mm -hmm. So the El Camino Real was extended into Natchitoches um, and uh, past Los Adias once France ceded um, uh, its Louisiana territory to Spain. So was the trail originally built by uh, by natives uh, of the area who, and then gradually over time, the people just traveled over it? Well, oh, El Camino Real is its own documentary in and of itself. It's, it, but there we had, was almost not outside the scope of this project, but we had to focus on no man's land, but El Camino Real was the road that was used, some say, by the Indians traveling through the country. Um, but whatever its origins were, it was the trail that Los Adias to Mexico City and San Antonio they took mm -hmm. to come and go. Mm -hmm. The Spanish Highway. Yeah, it was the yeah. Spanish Highway. Yeah, uh, most of the, the old uh, trails, the uh, Opelousas Trail, the uh, old Spanish Trail in uh, South Louisiana, uh, the, uh, El Camino Real were initially uh, uh, used by the uh, uh, bands of Native Americans going to and fro, and they were only slightly improved. They never became super highways, but they were just mildly improved with rope ferries possibly and for portaging spaces. Uh, to get uh, at one point from Natchez through Natchitoches all the way down to uh, to Mexico City and to Veracruz, uh, uh, it, it's uh, overland travel was so difficult at this point in time that that anything that had been established and, and used for centuries by the Native Americans was very quickly adopted by the Europeans. Uh, it was a much easier way of getting from one place to another if you couldn't use the waterways. Uh, and so overland trails um, were just built and built upon and reused and reused again. Um, 
So, yeah. And from that influence came, um, there was the Mexican influence and then in, the, in, in Northwest Louisiana cuisine, i.e. I, the, the Natchitoches meat pie was supposedly influenced by that, mm -hmm. um, I guess. But the and most those wally tamales. I was about to say that. I was about to say that the most famously named festival in the world is Wally Tamale Festival. <laughs> and Zwali, I believe, was a town in Germany. Okay. So anyway, so a town in Germany has a tamale festival uh, named after the in Natchitoches. Let me just um, get a little bit geographical orientation. If someone wants to go and see this part of the state, obviously we're talking about the western end. Um, Western end, um, not as far as Shreveport, but maybe as far as what would be the northern end of of, of of this area? I always tell people Logan's Port, and if if Adley Flo, you want to jump in yeah, and, yeah. and and define yeah. it further, I always say Logan's Port down to Lake Charles, and then you know nearly to uh, uh, Natchitoches to the east, which is really would be Los Adias and Robeline, <laughs> which is a little bit. Um, okay, right a little bit to the west of that'd be a good starting point. Natchitoches, which is worth visiting anyway. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah no. and then and then just go on and go to those parishes down there. Right, um, so. and, and it does include it does include uh, Vernon Parish, almost all of Vernon Parish, uh, uh, Sabine, um, uh, parts of Rapids, parts of uh, of uh, Allen Parish and Evangeline Parish and Calcasieu and Cameron. So it's a, it sort of bellies out a little bit and then goes up through. Uh, think of it as being halfway, anywhere halfway between the Sabine and the Chafalaya. One halfway between there is probably the, the, the furthest eastern boundary of the, uh, of the no man's land. It's always been very flexible because we're talking about what we, the settlement patterns were such, they were so scattered with so few residents anyway that they were, and they didn't really have very good maps to decide where where the lines needed to be drawn. So it's sort of a, more of a, I don't think you could step across a line and say, oh, I'm in no man's land, I'm not in no man's land. I don't think you could ever do that anywhere in, in Western Louisiana. But the that very flexible boundary is roughly that Western wedge of Louisiana. But is, is most of the Sabine in Louisiana? Uh, well, by, by definition, the Sabine River is, uh, goes up and then it, it, it cuts off and then we have a straight, uh, we have a, a longitude line as the uh, boundary uh, north of Logansport. But from that point south uh, is definitely no man's land, as, uh, as uh, uh, Bill mentioned. It's definitely no man's land south of that point. Um, the purchase, the Louisiana Purchase, which defined the purchase as being all lands drained by the Mississippi River and its tributaries are distributaries, means that the Red River, the lands on both sides of the Red River were part of the Louisiana Purchase. But defining that when you had Spain having owned it just three years earlier was tough. It became, uh, it became the great unknown. Uh, that's why Lewis and Clark were sent out because they had absolutely no idea what they bought. Uh, they were very free to sell something that they really never owned uh, uh, and certainly never ruled over properly. Uh, the French, um, uh, Napoleon, you know, wanted to, wanted ready cash to fight and uh, gave up Louisiana very quickly. Uh, and, uh, but what he sold, he didn't quite understand and what the U.S. bought, they didn't quite understand either. Uh, by some reports, uh, Jefferson thought he had bought all the way to the Rio Grande. I mean, there, there was some thought of that, or at least to the Natchez River. Uh, it, was, it was very confusing. Uh, they, they, you know, they didn't have lawyers, and certainly not lawyers as good as we have today. They didn't dot I's and sure. cross T's very well back then. Okay. But just quickly, today, though, today, the Sabine, is it all in, is it split or is it all in Louisiana? It's on Louisiana's border, and it continues into Texas. The Sabine continues okay. into Texas, past yeah. Louisiana's border. You know, why does Texas need more land? I mean, they're like 800 miles across right now. You know, <laughs> you know they don't need all that. Uh, anyway, uh, we're about to run up. I want to ask you just kind of like a, a general question. Uh, and that is, if you were there, what is your favorite thing there? Okay, if you out there and you're visiting and you, 
and you, and you wanted to show somebody really something special, what is your favorite thing? Before that, I just want to change topic for a second and quickly and ask you, how's Lake Charles doing? Is it coming back? Lake Charles is coming back very, very, very slowly. Uh, I lived through the Rita experience here. You remember the Rita Katrina year when we had all that delight? Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, Laura was a much, much stronger storm, uh, really much stronger. And uh, then uh, six weeks later, we had Delta, which was as horrible a storm and a completely different type of storm. It was a very wet storm. So uh, Light Charles um, is very slow, slowly recovering. It, it's going to take probably eight years for it to recover. I was on the DDA at the Downtown Development Authority at the time of Rita, and it took, I could see that it was gonna take a long time to, to, to come back. We still have houses with blue tarps in Lake Charles. There are still people living in, in uh, trailers in their front yard. There are still people having problems with their insurance companies. I don't wanna frighten anybody in the Eastern part of Louisiana, but um, uh, uh, insurance companies have really not come to bat in Western Louisiana with Laura and Delta. Uh, it's going to be a ways. We have lost also probably, I'm going to say probably 12 to 15% of our permanent population. They've gone. We personally, my wife and I personally know probably 150, 200 people who have left. They are climate refugees. They have gone. They didn't want to fiddle with, with any more storms. It, it's it's very sad story, uh, uh, Errol. It's a very, very sad story that the nature of what Lake Charles is going to be is uh, is a little frightening and a little bit uncertain right now. Uh, they're working very hard uh, to, I mean, the, the, the police jury, the, the, the uh, uh, mayors work very hard to bring Lake Charles back, but it, 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 it may always be a place to come to work, but it may not be a place to live, raise a family or retire in because of the fear of a devastating, absolutely devastating storm every 15 years or so, or every 10 years or so, or, or even on, because it always goes, it clocks back to zero every year. It's not as, oh, we've had our storm, we're good for another 30 Thank years. That doesn't work in, in Southwest Louisiana. There's no the, law of averages. Working yeah, out. there's no law of averages here. So, so you're looking at uh, a, a Cat 5 storm, which was Laura, coming all the way up, no man's land, and all these folks having to rely on themselves because the feds did not come in. The, uh, uh, we did not get the help from the insurance companies. We did not, and I'm speaking personally and I'm speaking for a lot of people in, in Lake Charles. It has not been an easy two years. And to see it, another storm happening on the Louisiana Gulf Coast, the, the next year, it makes us very leery of investing any a lot, you know, any sort of money in, in this area or planning our lives, uh, uh, you know, to retire here. It's it's going to be tough. It's really tough. It must uh, have been horrible when Ida was coming. Yeah, it, it, we were we were. I mean, we were just in. We were convulsing here because we had already, we had seen it happen. We were bam bam, and it, it, it was horrible. It really truly horrible. Uh, and uh, as a preservationist, uh, we've, we've, uh, I just sense the fragile nature of architecture and the built environment here, because it's really tough to tell history when you don't have the artifact in front of you. It's really hard. That's part of the story. That's part of the, the problem with telling the no man's land story. We don't have the artifact. We don't have the thing. Uh, you know, you can talk about it. You can say it's, it's this and that, but you can't go to a spot and say, well, this is where no man's land began. This is where no man's land ended. And this is where uh, the uh, the brigands on the Camino Real were highwaymen in the, in the 1820s. We can say that, but you can't see a thing. It's so much nicer to see a fort or a, you know, a house or a, an, an artifact. And we have lost a lot of that uh, in, in Southwest Louisiana. Uh, so it's, uh, we're, we're really, kind of, anyway, I, I'm, you, you asked, and I'm, I'm just overflowing right now. We're still well, I, I think it's one of the major stories in Louisiana. So I, it, it is a major uh, story. Be uh, to, to not ask it. And um, just real quickly, that I can't think of that famous oak tree downtown. It's, uh, oh, the Sally Oak. Yeah, did that survive? Uh, Sally Oak survived, but it's, it's oh, it looks bad. It's been, it's been shorn of a lot of its branches. 
Um, you can see it, it, the Sally Oak, for those of you who don't know, Mr. Ms. Zellman, is uh, uh, the oak tree under which the cowboys met the, met the pirates and traded beef for textiles. Wow. And uh, <laughs> Sally, well, it's true. It's, uh, this is a part of Louisiana where cowboys beat pirates. Uh, and uh, uh, it's probably 375 years old. And it has been, it was shorn of a lot of its branches. It's still surviving, but it's just hanging on at this point. It's just hanging on. Well, if I was, if I was a cowboy trading beef with a pirate, I'd be real careful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's the, as I described uh, to, you know, to people who, who uh, I give tours to, this is the corner of Louisiana where pirates meet cowboys and have barbecues under oak trees. And that's the difference between us and Parlange Plantation. <laughs> <laughs> and may they all have a long, happy future. Bill, Flo, just give me some of your thoughts about the No Man's Land area. What's like some of your favorite places? Well, Flo, you want to start? I, I'll, I'll, I'll say real quickly, uh, the Wolf, Wolf Cub Cave. Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek Cave. There's a cave out there. And really? That, that is another place that you can go, Errol. And well, there's not um, any caves at all in Louisiana. So the you know, I remember 25 years ago doing a little feature story on one that um, might have been in another area of, of no man's land. I can't remember exactly where, but it was a little bit further east. It was not the, the Wolf Creek Cave, but um, you know, if, if, if your listeners are looking for a resource, the No Man's Land Commission, what's the website, Flo? It's um, No Man's Land. Nomansland.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there are um, Louisiana State Byways. There are three that are up in that area that you can touch on. <clears throat> the Toledo Bend Scenic um, Byway, the Mist and Legends Byway and uh, the Cane River National Heritage Area byway. You can get on any of those and just- Yeah, see. websites with all of those. That's a good recommendation because I've, I've looked at those tours. It's a, an excellent program, something that the state should be really proud of, you know? So if, uh, um, yeah, if, if, if you're on the website and if you just look for No Man's Land, be sure you don't go to, uh, to Belgium or something. <laughs> <laughs> You have to Google No Man's Land, Louisiana. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, make sure you make it right, right turn. And Alden, do you have a pick? Do you have, do you have one for Um. Oh, you know, I just, I love the powwows that happen up there um, amongst the Native American tribes. The, um, uh, the Choctaw Apache tribe had allowed us the privilege to be in their circle. Um, for their powwow and to film it yeah it that was an amazing event um they, there's such family oriented people up there um and Errol, to paint a quick picture of that we were shooting the uh the powwow and there are bald eagles flying around okay. above the and then with the toledo bend lake in the background unbelievable now the powwow's back um we did, some um, of them are not all of them i don't okay. think the um Cushada had one this year um but um they're you know they're in flux but they had one this they had one this past year okay. wasn't as big as it normally is yeah all right we did a show with a guy from the Cushada. he was a past tribal chief and uh, he was traveling and he was at the watergate hotel and uh, it's kind of funny just interviewing a a Cushada from the Watergate Hotel. It just struck me as funny. But anyway, Adley? Well, uh, one of the things that, that um, uh, I would recommend is uh, Sam Houston Jones State Park, uh, which is just north of Lake Charles on the west side of the Calcutta River. It's, uh, uh, it was fairly damaged by uh, Laura, but it was uh, a wonderful example of the longleaf pine and cypress that drew the very first settlers to uh, southwest Louisiana. Uh, the pine and cypress there, the longleaf pine and cypress, were the, the timbers that helped to, to uh, entice the, the settlers here. And they were used for 
a mass for ships. Uh, when Lake Charles was a shipping center, it was uh, there. Uh, it, it shows what the land was like uh, before the white man came and, and poked flags in the ground and tried to make boundaries. So uh, uh, Sam Houston Jones State Park is good, although I must admit they have been really badly damaged by Laura and they haven't completely come back. But the trees there show that the, the paradise, the, the forest paradise that was no man's land. And uh, it can kind of take you back to those early, early days. Okay, um, this has been delightful. Uh, Bill, one quick question. The next documentary. Well, Flo, what is it? Um, I tell you what we want to do is oh, um, yes. we want to do Toledo Bend. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thunder. So why don't you? Well, we shall see. Or we want to do, we want to do also. What about Mavis? Yeah, um, we've already got half of a doc in the can about Mavis Fruget, who is um, at a French table in Arnoville. Oh. Who had, and, and her influence along with George Marks and New News and that entire cultural community, that artist mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. They are now, um, the next step is St. Luke Immersion School. The only um, French immersion for adults in the state of Louisiana, oh, and Mavis Fruget wow. learned to speak French in Can I mean to read and write French in Canada, although she had always spoke French. Wow, mm -hmm. amazing! That that area is just chock full of stories. There are great too. stories in, in French Louisiana. I'm from I'm originally from Broad Ridge. Je parle français comme des Cajuns. Mm -hmm. But I, so I, I, and I'm familiar with the, the, it was once not cool to be Cajun. It, it wasn't. Yeah. It, no. oh, I know. I know. I lived through that era. And I, I can tell you stories of my parents who had to, you know, were punished for speaking French. Uh, but uh, in Burr Bridge, we had a very active uh, uh, French program. And uh, of course, I, I speak French and I can read and write French, which is good. Uh, so there are a lot of great stories there. And I also want to put in a plug, if you're looking for, for a possible um, a subject, so you may want to look at the Sabine Lighthouse, too. Uh, Sabine Parish Lighthouse, in Cameron Parish, the uh, Sabine Lighthouse, which was uh, built in 1837, just at the, about the time of no man's land, um, you know, petering out, uh, is uh, being restored and refurbished right now. And uh, the Battle of Sabine Pass, which is Texas's most famous Civil War battle, it was fought around the, the uh, Sabine Lighthouse. So uh, Texas's most famous Civil War battle actually takes place in Louisiana. So there's some stories there to, to be told um, uh, if you're looking for possible subjects. Uh, also, I'm always looking for great stories. That sounds good. I'll check um, yeah, I'll check it we'll out. We'll talk later, Adley. Yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's great. And a little plug for Louisiana. Your your magazine is spectacular, Errol. Oh well, thank you. Really. Thank you I, I love it. We subscribe. We yeah. we love it. It's uh, it's as uh, as positive a piece as you'll find in Louisiana. It's very supportive of of the people and the culture here. Thank you. We have, we have the good people working on it, and then the um. I think being able to do this podcast kind of helps complement a little bit, uh, you know, stories you couldn't always get into a magazine. So I like the combination of what it does. So I appreciate very much your comments. I'll pass it on to the staff. Back to the Cajun thing. Um, there was a Cajun revival, or, or maybe it was in the 70s or so. In my theory, and using my theories are wrong, okay? Uh, but my theory is that what triggered it, um, first of all, Paul Prudhomme. Uh, when Paul Prudhomme started cooking in New Orleans in the French Quarter, where there was like a global uh, uh, audience, people passing by and they were doing, and he created the image of everything Cajun being spicy. I mean, like Cajuns, like when you were a little kid, was everything spicy? No. Um, that you ate okay? And, no, no, no. Yeah, no I, I grew up in Burbridge. I can tell you, food was not, food was wasn't. basic and not, uh, and I mean, I'm well fed, so. Yeah, uh, it, it was fine, but it, I think it, it, things became conflated because we grow pepper, Tabasco is right there, and that, that conflation of the use of, of spices, I think you're right, uh, it, it, it was an isolated culture, Paul Prudhomme was a flag bearer, unfortunately he was a flag bearer that brought the idea that all things Louisiana, including our pepper, and 
salt and everything else is also part of the picture. And the, so, and the, image, of, the image of Cajun Day is totally spicy, okay? Yeah, and yeah. Then, around the, then around that time, Popeyes came into existence. Yeah. The chicken and made a spicy chicken, okay? Right. And so I think all of that, and then all of a sudden, Cajun music got more popular, but it's... Uh, well, it's a, it's a brand. It's a brand. I mean, yeah. Cajun is a brand, just like Louisiana is a brand. You, you, you've never heard of North Dakota cuisine, have you? But Louisiana cuisine, Cajun cuisine, you know, that's a story. I thought people in North Dakota, they went to Montana to eat. Okay, That's just, right. Yeah. <laughs> or Minnesota. Right. Hey, look, it's been delightful. I've enjoyed it. Hey, when y'all get a story going, when you got something to talk about, let's get in touch and we'll do this again, okay? Sounds good, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.